Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors Series. My name is Amanda White. I'm editor of top1000funds.com and director of institutional content at Connexus Financial. I'm joined today by Colin Leduc. Colin is a founding partner of Generation Investment Management and a member of the Just Climate Management Committee. He's also head of Generation San Francisco office. A very warm welcome to you, Colin. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Amanda. So as we approach the end of the year and 2023 is on the horizon, let's start with your outlook and some discussion around secular themes. Don't want to start out too negatively in this discussion, but basically your outlook for 2023 is there will be a recession. We also have an energy crisis and a cost of living crisis in Europe and further potential impact in Taiwan. At the same time, we have high inflation and low growth in many parts of the world. So how is all of this impacting your thinking and, and, and talk us through your outlook for the next year? Sure. I think uh, it's important to start off by saying we're, we are not macro investors per se, but um, Generation is really founded on the principle of sustainable investing. And as a, as a consequence of that, we very much take some of these bigger picture considerations into account when we think about investing. And I think the way we're looking out into 2023 and beyond is that a long-term investing framework continues to make even more sense in that kind of environment where you've got so much uncertainty cutting across all of the themes that you've talked about. I think we also have a founding belief that the sustainability transition is an enormous risk and opportunity for investors of all shapes and sizes. And what has occurred in the last year or two and what is occurring now and what will likely roll out in the next kind of 12 months or so is just an acceleration of a lot of the sustainability trends and the, the importance of the need for really a deep and true understanding of what sustainability means to the economy. Because a lot of these crises that you refer to are actually sustainability crises, and um, that is increasingly being understood by people. So. I think the skill for investors is to understand that investing is hard and that navigating these transitions is, is our job and uh, generation is set up to navigate that. So let's talk about one of those in particular and in your sustainability trends report for 2020, you go into quite a lot of detail about the many ways the war in Ukraine has uh, altered the energy discussion in Europe and in particular raising the possibility that the EU could lead the world in a faster transition to clean energy. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means from an investment perspective and perhaps where you see some opportunities that, that might come out of that tragedy? Yeah, so you, you uh, have referred to the Generation Sustainability uh, Trends Report, which is an annual publication that we put out to really give an insight into where we are in the transition to sustainability across a variety of sectors. And this year, we decided to focus in on, on the Ukraine uh, war and the impacts and the tragedy around Ukraine and the impacts on the European energy transition in particular. So I think what we see is obviously a need to get off um, the addiction effectively to fossil fuel imports into the European continent, and that has accelerated the transition to renewable energy. I think the other dimension of that is, of course, the need to decentralize energy systems as well. So there's been a real push into decentralized energy systems, which are typically renewable as well. And I think in addition to that, there has been um, some commitment to 
the twin goals of both energy security and the climate transition. So if you do shift to true low carbon distributed systems, you actually hit both of those. You build in you build in energy security and resilience, but you also actually reduce emissions dramatically. Now this is not all a one-way street, of course. You know, you have seen some short-term increase in investments in high fossil and high high emitting um, energy energy sources such as the increasing investment in coal in the short term or um, more gas imports from other parts of the world so some of the this is not necessarily a smooth and orderly transition um, that, that we're talking about in the report I think what we're trying to point out is that this ultimate um, arc of history to bending towards a sustainable economy is is a disorderly and a volatile and a difficult trajectory to manage. It's it's not a linear thing. And as a consequence, there are risks and opportunities uh, associated to that. So our general thesis is, and we, we talk about this a lot in the sustainability trends report across a whole number of sectors, is that the capital markets we believe are overexposed and underprepared for the sustainability transition, and in particular, the climate transition. And as a con that, that presents opportunity for, for investors who are well prepared. So one thing that might sort of smooth that volatility of that transition, I guess, is legislation, um, which can act as, you know, a, a, an, an encouraging um, uh, factor as well. So let's unpack a little bit what's happening in terms of legislation around the world and how that's impacting the opportunities and the, the market and the behaviours. Um, in the US in particular, we've gone from um, legislation that stopped us from doing things to encouraging us to do things. How do you how do you see um, that impacting the U.S. market in particular, which is you know where you're based? Sure. Well, look, I think I think with all sectors, um, regulation and government government plays an incredibly important role. And I think what what many people have realised is this that this sustainability transition will not happen without government support and government intervention and regulatory support. So there are limits to what the market can do on its own in terms of addressing some of these broader challenges. So I think what you've seen recently, and that, that was very exemplified by COVID, of course, in terms of the the power of regulatory intervention in changing how society is operating. But I think what you're seeing now with climate, energy security, and sustainability more broadly is that governments are realizing the markets alone are not solving these problems and so they need help and so you know private sector led but government enabled is the sort of mantra and as a consequence the us just passed the inflation reduction act which is the largest piece of climate uh, supportive legislation in history many hundreds of billions of dollars of support for the low carbon transition of all shapes and sizes of a sort of plethora of, of solutions right across the board in terms of moving to a low carbon um, a low carbon economy and it really is an impressive suite of things that they that has been put in place and has been enshrined in law in the us and the the commitment to reduce us emissions by 40 percent by the end of 2030 is an, is an incredibly ambitious goal. And the IRA actually lays out a very clear pathway to do that. Now, in, in your country of Australia, recently have changed its tune on climate as well, as you, as you well know, and has very similar ambitions and very similar commitments. And align that with the EU as well. I think you've got a series of, of pathfinding and leading legislation and, and regulatory interventions that have really come to the fore in recent times. Um, I think, however, there is there is of course you know two sides to every story, and you know we we still 
support the fossil fuel industry with uh, you know very very large amount of subsidies every year. So that is continues to be an issue. Um, we still do not have uh, a coherent uh, pricing system around carbon, for example, around the world that is consistent and aggressive enough to actually generate real change. That is starting to change, but there's we're a very very long way from a functioning global carbon market if we ever get there at all. Um, and so there's, there's there's definitely a lot of puts and takes um, in terms of the legislation um, that has been put in place. But I, I would say it is it is encouraging, in in particular what has happened in the U.S. Uh, I mean, you're not quite an Englishman in New York, but you're an Englishman in in San Francisco, which which uh, which gives you a different view of the world, I guess. You know what. what it's hard to have a conversation about the US without talking about the political nature of ESG and sustainability in the US, particularly over the last kind of year or so. You know, how do you, sitting there in, in California, how do, you, how do you view that in terms of it being um, unhelpful, I guess, to investors in particular who want to get on with allocating capital to where, you know, the world needs it most and where they see investment opportunities, which, you know, for the large parties are sustainability related. Um, um, is it just a very, very difficult and unhelpful thing to be so political around ESG? Well, I think the politicization of ESG is really a, a symptom of a wider questioning that's going on around the maturation of, of the sustainable investing and the ESG investing idea and space. Which, And we very much welcome the, the criticism that is happening now in terms of how ESG is being implemented generally. We do believe it needs to mature and it is maturing. And um, as, a, as a concept, as an idea, as a, as a way to think about investing um, and so I do. I do feel that that um, that focus on terminology, uh, consistent application of uh, rules and, and regulation around what we mean by ESG, what we mean by sustainable investing, is starting to increasingly take shape. Take shape um, through things like the um, you know disclosure standards that are out there. Um, the SEC here in the US has taken a very sharp look at uh, greenwashing and is starting to really uh, show its teeth around that, um, which is very, very welcome. And all of these things are related um, because there has been you know, a lot of confusion around ESG and because it's a, a maturing and growing space and a, and a growing notion. And I think some people have decided to pick that up as a political football, if you like. And what we do is we just say, listen, you know, do you think it's a good idea as an investor to have a full holistic perspective on the quality of a business and the quality of a management team? And if you do, then taking material concepts into account and material insights into account that could affect the value of the business or the quality of the management team just makes sense if you're a fundamental investor. And so we are not a political fund in any shape or form. We are just an institutional asset management firm. And that you know, we are a pure play sustainable investor. And so as a consequence, we take all these considerations into account if they are material to long-term shareholder value. Um, and so I think we, that is the angle we would take as we see this all wrapped up in the same journey that sustainable investing all is on to really establish itself as investing best practice, which, which we see as, as increasingly the case. So, so let's talk a little bit about the framework for investing. And you did mention this at the outset uh, a little bit, but 
in terms of time horizons, and the industry has talked for a long time, particularly the asset owners, about being a long-term investment industry and being long-term owners of capital. And yet in times of crisis like we are in, that's sort of increasingly difficult to do. Why do you think it's so important to have that long-term view and how does that work in practice? So we believe that long-term investing is best practice. Um, We believe there is a difference between trading and investing. Um, and there are some very good traders out there, and you can do very well in trading. But there, there is a, there is a, there is a role for short-term investing and trading. Um, but if you really actually want to change things and really build something for the longer term, you actually need to take a long, a long-term investing framework. And so our approach is very much to say a really a fundamental question around what does society really need? What are the products and services that will positively be required over a very long period of time? So what are the real needs of the economy? What are really what what are the sort of real needs of the economy, if you like, going forward? Um, and then that are really built for long-term resilience and success in that context. And really it's a compound uh, trying to take advantage of a compounding effect. If you can find a fantastic business that is just compounding over a long period of time, you don't want to sell that. And so if you can uh, if you can take a uh, a research approach that enables you to have a, a longer term view than maybe the, the market is typically taking, which is increasingly dominated by shorter term investors and and algorithms, um, you you have that long term advantage to to your research process, and you can sort of look through some of the cyclic cyclicality that's in the market often and play the longer term secular trends that are out there. Um, and then as long as you find a management team that has the same alignment with you in terms of how it is running its business for the long term. So what are the long-term sustainable factors that this culture represents, that this company represents? Are the products and services things that make sense in terms of the markets of the future versus the markets of the past? And is this company on the right side of history? And these are easy things to say, but it's very hard to do in terms of the implementation. Um, and there's obviously a very detailed approach and methodology that we have around how to assess all of these things. Um, but in many ways, it's just really fundamental common sense and trying to take out the noise of the short term to, with a very clear-eyed primary research fundamental focus to really finding the companies that you believe are going to be the best for the very long term. Then, of course, you have to pay the right price. But Fundamentally, it's about the quality in a long-term investing framework that explicitly recognizes that environmental and social factors are increasingly driving how economies evolve. So, so you mentioned the sort of you know the right side of history and the and the difference between companies of the past and companies of the future. Are there any sort of defining factors that you that you can identify if you think about what the company of the future? looks like and and how it looks different to companies of the past? I mean, obviously, there's ESG factors in that, but are you looking particularly at certain technologies or, you know, what what are some of the new companies that you're looking to invest in? Um, Yeah, so what I would say is that I think if you start with where do you you think the growth markets of tomorrow are? What what do you think society needs going forward, right? So we would... would, we would think that you probably need you know companies that are involved in making people healthier, for example. So we would rather invest in food companies, for example, that help people with their health rather than uh, add to the obesity crisis, for example. So um, you know, on on energy, we would obviously want companies that are involved in low carbon versus high carbon, you know, etc. So there are some very high level sort of directional secular trends that you you can follow. And then within that, you have to go very deep on each sector and work out what are the long term success factors 
within each subsector um, because it's not uniform. And this is one of the problems with ESG tick boxing uh, sort of approach to an ESG framework. It doesn't work across all sectors. It's, it's far too blunt an instrument. You actually have to go much, much deeper on your research to really work out what is material for the long-term success of a particular business in a particular sector. But I think there are some sort of defining characteristics. Don't, you know, don't, don't be uh, extracting rent from your customers, for example. So the, the, the customer has to get a good deal right, mm-hmm. over the long term. That, that means that you will have long-term customer demand because it's a good deal for the consumer, for example. Or you need something that has got regulatory tailwinds rather than headwinds. So if you were involved in a business that really damages its consumers, you could probably, you're probably going to get some regulatory tailwinds over time. So... These are some sort of easy things to work out, right? Um, and then you then you focus in on the culture of the company. So is it being managed for the long term? Are the incentives aligned to to push management to do the right thing for the long term for the business? Or are they just incentivized to maximize short-term shareholder value? And you know, the long term is not just an accumulation of of, of, of quarters, you know, you, you actually can explicitly manage for a three to five or ten year view, and some companies for even much longer. Um, so I think I think those are just sort of gives you some sense of some of the the longer term things that, that we would we would have in our framework um, around uh, re- really looking for those companies that are that are focused on providing what society needs in the long term. Great, thanks, Colin. Um, might shift the conversation a little bit. We've just come out of COP twenty seven. Um, Generation's been instrumental in advocating for collaboration. It's a co-founder of Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. Uh, It's also involved in GFANS, where David Blood leads the working stream on the measurement of portfolio alignment, which essentially helps institutions show in a robust and scientifically credible way whether their financing activities are helping to meet the 1.5 degree goal of of Paris Agreement. so first of all, what do you think about the ongoing viability of meetings like the COP to affect change and to galvanise support for allocating capital where it's needed? Well, I think the I think the COP process. A lot of people have talked about the fact it probably needs a bit of a reboot. Um, I think that is, but it is the best we've got um, in terms of uh, a global forum to talk about a global issue. And so I think it would be extremely dangerous to dismantle it um, because there where would just be no, there's no other forum like it. Um, so, but and is it ideal? No, it isn't. But um, you know, is it necessary? Yes, it is. So, um, I, I do believe that collaboration is required in a systemic um, challenge like climate. And uh, we're increasingly seeing that corporates understand that true leadership on climate it goes beyond their own four walls and that how, the, how they collaborate with the rest of an industry to evolve an entire industry is actually true leadership. And that, that's where we're starting to see people like the members of GFANS, for example, put their neck on the line and say, this is what we believe in, in terms of the climate transition. Um, I guess the, the real question is whether people will stick to those commitments, because I, I do feel there has been some some backtracking with with certain entities as the year has evolved since COP26, um, where there was a lot of enthusiasm and commitments and people have started to uh, you know go a little bit quiet or push things a little bit to the right or start to talk about transition plans that are not necessarily aligned with 1.5 degrees and not necessarily aligned with science-based targets. So I think there's a real focus on credibility of transition plans right now. Um, and some of that has to do with collaboration. Some of that has to do with um, 
you know, what has happened to the fossil fuel complex in the last 12 months, given the Ukraine war, coming back to that, and people sort of really trying to navigate that when you've got very, very high short-term energy prices. What do you do about that as an investor? Um, are you just going to leave money on the table to stick to your to your climate commitments? And so I think, you know, these are very nuanced debates for sure. But um, I do believe this collaborative approach to, you know, radical partnerships is absolutely necessary on climate because it is the ultimate tragedy of the commons and we can't do it with a bunch of individual actions. Um, we have to do it with a, a really collaborative systemic approach to change. So I think COP27 has produced some some very good outcomes, uh, in particular around loss and damage and starting to recognize, uh, you know, the need to um, fix some of the, the historical issues and the legacy issues of, of what the global north has has produced over time for, the, for you know, compensating the global south. But I, I still believe that we have a long way to go in terms of countries actually fulfilling their Paris Agreement um, commitments around delivering very aggressive nationally determined contributions and sticking to a 1.5 degree pathway. Yeah, uh, I wholeheartedly agree. So I mentioned that um, that David Budd's working the GFAN's working stream on measurement um, and portfolio alignment. So let's talk about measurement for a second and the and the importance of it when it comes to sustainable investing. And you hear time and time again people talking about lack of data, lack of clarity of data, data lack of transparency, lack of quality of data. Um, and and yet, you know, you you guys and and some others have have a very robust research process that seems to be able to draw on the data that you need. So, what would you say about that um, reasoning in terms of your approach to data and how we can get around these obstacles or perceived obstacles of lack of data? Well, a number of things. Clearly, there's an incredibly important area, which is why there's so much debate. Um, I, I would say that. Um, you know, we have a view that perfection can be the enemy of the good. I think you know that you're being directionally correct is actually better than waiting for perfection on, on, on data clarity. So I think, you know, you need to move in the direction of sustainability and low carbon, even if you're not 100% nailed down in terms of how you're defining everything, you know, rather than just perpetuating the status quo in the higher carbon economy. So you need to shift to low carbon, right? Then work out um, how, how you're going to measure it and disclose it and all of those things. Um, so I think you can, you know, walk and chew gum, right? So you've got to do both. Um, the other thing I would say is that a lot of the emissions inventories of the world have been dramatically underreporting global emissions historically because they have been based on, on voluntary reporting of countries and companies. And so uh, Al Gore uh, just led a coalition of NGOs and, and data scientists to produce something called Climate Trace, which enables real-time tracking of um, asset level greenhouse gas inventories around the world, which actually brings a level of radical transparency, which has never been seen before in terms of uh, of really understanding where emissions are coming from, rather than relying on self-reporting, which is years old and, and inaccurate. Um, so unfortunately, the news is very, very bad on actual levels of emissions, which are much, much higher than has historically been reported. Um, but of course, you know, parallel to that, within, in particular, in the financial services space, and in the, in the, um, you know, when you're thinking about things from a central bank perspective, for example, 
you do need data to understand the systemic risk that the financial system is running and that the global economy is running. So the, the great thing about climate is that the unit of currency of a ton of CO2 is a well-understood metric and a well-understood um, unit of currency to, to track something meaningful, i.e. emissions. That gets a lot more complicated when you broaden it beyond carbon. Um, when you start talking about even about poverty or human health or all of these aspects, there is not an agreed upon single unit of currency to measure those things. And so climate at least has that going for it, that you, you can use that unit of currency to really measure things. So what you're starting to see is an increasing amount of um, investors really having explicit impact goals based around climate alongside risk and return. Um, Rather than just talking about risk and return, people are starting to talk about risk, return, and impact um, in a very powerful way. So I think the the again the regulators are necessarily working on all of this. The IFRS launched the International Sustainability Standards Board. I won't go through the alphabet soup of everything that's out there because there really is an alphabet soup around this. But we are heading in the right direction. My again, I would come back to what I said at the beginning of this little bit was beware that perfection is not the enemy of the good because if we wait for perfection on reporting we, we every day we're we're missing the, <laughs> the 1.5 degree window so we cannot wait for systems to be put in place they have to be put in place while we fix the problem and so um, that that would be what i would say on that so i think there's a lot of very good work going on um and many, many people are working on all this. Uh, I, I think if you, again, go back to the principle of fundamental investing around material issues that affect the long term of a business and or hence of your investment, as long as you're paying the right price, of course, um, you know, you don't need to measure everything. You just need indicators about the most material drivers of long term shareholder value. And so... And again, it's not always down to a single metric. It could be a kaleidoscope or, a, or a, you know, just a sort of a, a just a series of different indicators that, that enable you to get a picture on something. And so um, that, that's that's why the analysts do so much research is because they have a holistic perspective on this. So it's not like generation suddenly got the answer to which metrics make sense and generate alpha in the market. I mean, that's not the case at all. It's just we place importance on these topics. And we do as much comprehensive research and look for insights from everyone we possibly can that might have a point of view on this. Um, and then on the advocacy side of what we're doing at Generation, we, of course, support all of these initiatives that are trying to systematize this so that we can mainstream these frameworks into the whole of the capital market. And Generation is almost 20 years old now as a business, and we've been helping a lot of these initiatives get off the ground over the years. Yeah, right. That's great work. So, I mean, you, meant, you mentioned risk return impact and, you know, many asset owners I, I'm talking to now are starting to pay more attention to these 3D investment frameworks, but it seems extraordinarily difficult to, to actually do. I know that Generation alongside the PRI um, commissioned the Freshfields report, which gives a, a legal framework for, for impact. How are you and others using that in practice and how, how, does that, how is that helpful for setting up that, that investment uh, framework in a 3D lens? So I, th I think the... Um so if you look, for example, at what the EU has recently published in terms of its uh, classifying funds as Article 9 or Article 8 or Article 7, what this is referring to is the degree of explicit impact 
focus of a fund. And so at the Article 9 level, you, you really do have an explicit focus on sustainability and impact as a purpose of the investment strategy alongside risk and return. And then it sort of goes goes along from there in terms of a spectrum of priorities, if you like. Um, so, it, you know, all, all of these different approaches are valid. Um, or, or all I think is, is beginning to happen is that people are realizing that a pure free market approach to dealing with some of the world's biggest problems um, is sort of necessary but not sufficient. And so if you know one one of the one of the challenges with sustainable investing has been a confusion over what the objective of sustainable investing. <laughs> so if your objective is to deliver long-term financial returns sustainably, that is a perfectly good objective and a very, very valuable service to pensioners, for example. Um, but some investors actually want to do more than that in terms of they want to direct capital to explicitly solve a particular social issue. And so that is impact-led investing, that is climate-led investing, where you're where your objects, so that is different to sustainable investing in the sense that you're now explicitly saying, I'm going to focus on this problem and use capital to try and explicitly solve that. Therefore, please measure me on how I do about that. And that's why the third leg of the stool becomes important because you're, you're actively saying, I'm going to optimize risk and return and impact. Whereas in sustainable investing, you're saying, I'm going to optimize risk and return sustainably, right, in a long-term investing context. And that's a very important thing to do, no doubt. And that will probably have a positive impact on the world, but understand we're not optimizing for that. And so I think the EU, for example, has started to enshrine the difference between those things um, uh, in, in you know how they're classifying the funds. So... The Freshfield work is very important because what it, what, it, what it basically says is that taking ESG and impact into consideration when you're a fiduciary investor um, is actually your duty as a fiduciary to take it in and you're out of sync with your duty if you are not taking these things into account. So that's a very, very important legal insight. Um, and now we're moving to a next stage, which is where um, climate-led investing or impact-led investing is starting to show signs of early institutionalization where and we, we have launched a business called just climate which does this where it basically takes a climate objective as a north star and optimizes risk return and impact um, rather than just risk and return and so i think that is the next wave of sustainable investing is the the delivery of authentic impact at scale where um, in particular as it relates to decarbonization um, and more and more institutional asset owners are asking asset managers like ourselves to help them fulfill their, their own net zero goals. Because a lot of the big asset owners of the world have made net zero commitments, which is through GFANs and other things. And they're realizing that they can only pick the low hanging fruit with how many investment mandates work today. And then they're asking the question, how on earth do we go to true net zero? How do we go all the way? How do we do the, the other stuff that's not easily fundable? And so that's where you need to innovate around the nature of an investment mandate. And that is that is what we are doing with Just Climate is to try and help asset owners solve that wider problem. Um, so, you know, not just investing in de-risked renewables in North America, for example, or not just buying the Tesla stock or whatever it might be. You know, it, it, you actually need to focus on the hard to abate sectors and the hard to abate geographies, as well as all of the de-risked aspects of decarbonization. So, we realized that 
climate and sustainability presents an innovation challenge to every industry, and that includes finance. Um, and we need to change the way mandates work so that we can actually allocate capital for different outcomes. Um, because we just weren't getting there over the last 20 years of sustainable investing collectively. You know, carbon emissions continue to go up. They're going to go up 2 or 3% this year. They're projected to go up 10% by the end of this decade at a time when they need to go down 50%. And so something's not working, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of how real-world impact is, 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 is going the wrong way, even though sustainable investing is booming. Right. So there's a mismatch there, um, which, which I think is starting to play out in all of this greenwashing and the pushback and the confusion around what ESG and sustainable investing is. And so, again, you know, I'll come back to the this is I, I would characterize sustainable investing as being in a somewhat adolescent phase where, you know, we'll grow up to become a full blown adult. And as, as you know, my chairman and my senior partner recently said in The Wall Street Journal, we do believe sustainable investing is best practice, and we believe that capitalism in its best form is sustainable capitalism. Yeah, I want to explore this uh, this point around innovation for a bit, Colin, and, and, and this is sort of a, a really great place to finish, I think, this conversation. Just uh, some stats to, to support what you're saying. Of the capital flowing into climate today, only 10% is actually going to the solutions for the highest emitting hard-to-abate sectors that create over 50% of global emissions. So even if you just look at that 10% versus 50% kind of mismatch, then, of course, we need to innovate and we can't do what we what we used to do that wasn't working, as, as you say. Um, and I think... Uh, you know, perhaps the investment management industry has been a little bit slow to catch up with with that inno innovative uh, kind of aspect of it. So can you tell us a little bit more about, so Just Climate is a climate-led investment business um, aiming to address net zero at scale. Are we, what sort of, in, is it listed? Is it renewables? Is it, what are you, what are you looking at in particular? Yeah, so um, I think what we're trying to do there is to help uh, close the impact gap. Um, within the sort of climate finance gap, if you like. So there, there's a need to both scale the amount of capital that's going into climate from about a trillion a day uh, today to about four trillion a year between now and 2050. So there's a scale issue, but there's also a where does that capital go issue? Because if it all goes into the same things like renewables in, in America, for example, you're, you're getting no more incremental decarbonization. Right, it actually needs to go to the highest debate, highest debating sectors, uh, the highest emitting sectors like steel or buildings or cement or aviation or shipping or these difficult areas. And um, you know, so what we're focusing in with just climate is to really say, and, and we, we've you know been fortunate enough to get a mandate from our investors to pursue this, which is we are going to go in and find the the most impactful investments we can while delivering attractive financial returns. So appropriate financial fiduciary returns while being climate-led. So you ask yourself the question, what are the total addressable emissions? Where do you have the highest impact per dollar that you're investing? And you start from there. So you're defining your investment opportunity set based on highest possible impact. Then you're underwriting in an appropriate commercial manner. And that is a very different question to just asking, how do I make appropriate returns for my, my clients sustainably? This is a very different question, is how do I make as much impact as possible while delivering fiduciary returns? 
So these are different things. And um, as a consequence, we we are leaning in to the areas of um, that still require a degree of catalytic capital where where many of these solutions are not yet fully bankable, but they require bank, you know, a bridge to bankability. And that is the risk that you're taking. But therefore, that is also the return that you will benefit from because you are taking that explicit risk to, to bridge to bankability. Um, and so the, the other side of the coin there is, of course, that um, you know, we, we are investing in the deployment of a lot of hard assets. So, you know, we, we have this concept called the time value of carbon, where the faster we act on carbon emission reductions, the better we all are collectively. And where the real finance gap is around climate today is in the deployment of hard assets in hard to abate sectors. So building projects is the hard thing. It's easy to finance software businesses. It's easy to finance very large scale infrastructure that's de-risked. It's not easy to fund plants one to five of some new technology that's delivering green cement or green steel or sustainable aviation fuels. That's the financing gap that we are focused on with Just Climate. So it's part of the generation family. Um, it's a sort of another leg on the stool in terms of the spectrum of the things we do at generation in terms of optimizing between the risk return and impact equation. Well, Colin, it's been an absolute pleasure, very inspirational conversation, and um, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Amanda. Great questions. Appreciate it.